Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, communications manager at the Macdonald Laurie Institute, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Ken Coates, MLI Monk Senior Fellow, as well as a professor and Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. Ken, how are you today? Just great. Worried about Canada, to be honest. Well, I actually think a lot of folks are lately with news regarding some of those rail blockades, as well as a variety of projects not getting off the ground, most notably the Tech Frontier mine project in northern Alberta. I think there's a lot of concern about Canada's ability to actually get moving when it comes to economic development. And, and with that in mind, I, I, I think that's going to lead in quite nicely to what uh, I was hoping to chat about today, which is this perception, I think, in non-Indigenous Canada versus Indigenous Canada about the same issues. And, and these perceptions can be quite different. So I, I wanted to get a sense from you about how the uh, protests with regards to the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who are opposed to the coastal gasoline pipeline how are those protests being received in Indigenous Canada? As a non-Indigenous person, one sort of is always a bit reluctant to sort of speak for the Indigenous folks. And so I'll just tell you what I've been told by business leaders and red community members that I know across Western Canada, but also has now been covered better in the media. This project, this whole debate got started off on the wrong track because it morphed very, very quickly into this idea that Indigenous people were opposed to the pipeline and opposed to major energy development projects in Canada. Nothing could be further from the truth. Some Indigenous people are opposed. Some Indigenous people are very opposed. But the majority, in fact, the vast majority of Indigenous people in Western Canada are engaged. The Indian Resource Council has 130 members. Their members are very supportive of this kind of activity. The Coastal Gasoline Pipeline has the support of 20 uh, elected governments, uh, Indigenous governments across northern northern British Columbia. Even in the Wet'suwet'en situation, you'll notice when you look at the protests that there are very few Indigenous people participating in the projects and that many of the folks who are, are involved, and they have every right to be protesters and to be involved in these situations, are non-Indigenous people from outside northern British Columbia. Or they're people in the Mohawk who are very distant from the First Nations in northern BC. So, so I, I would put this situation to you very simply. If we looked at this thing properly, we would be celebrating Coastal Gas Link and LNG Canada as being the single greatest demonstration of Indigenous involvement, not just in the natural resource economy, but in the Canadian economy as a whole in our country's history. And we would recognize that while there were pockets of protest and concern, the overwhelming majority of Indigenous people support with environmental concerns front and center, support the idea of carefully done pipeline construction and LNG development. And it's such a tragedy that that core message, which was available to us a couple of months ago, has been pushed so far in the background that there are many Canadians who think that Indigenous people just simply don't support the sector at all. And I think that's a very interesting point, because while the, the narrative has improved in the last couple of years in terms of more individuals and more in the, the press recognizing how Indigenous peoples are oftentimes partners in these sorts of natural resource development projects, you're correct that the narrative was lost this time around. A lot of folks probably don't appreciate the degree to which there is public support for this project uh, within most members of even the Wet'suwet'en community. So this actually raises another uh, interesting point. With the broad public support amongst the Wet'suwet'en, uh, some non-Indigenous Canadians might be inclined to say, well, why don't they just do it? Why don't they just clear the tracks? These protests aren't related to the actual will of the Wet'suwet'en people. So why don't they just act swiftly and uh, stop these blockades? Uh, did you have any thoughts on the hereditary chief structure or, or why the government might be showing some more caution in this regard? 
I wouldn't turn to the hereditary chiefs quite yet. I think two things have been shown by this process. Number one is that Canada is an amazingly difficult country to, to defend, that it's actually very easy to cause enormous amount of hardship in our economy and to do it very quickly. And so you, you look at what's going on. The number of people who are closing down the railways in southern Ontario would barely make a football team. You don't talking about thousands of people gathered on the, in, across the rail lines. You're talking about a dozen or two. You know, that, that's very small. And we're yet we're almost paralyzed in doing something about it for reasons that continue to escape me. What we're also seeing is the, the liberal gamble come undone. Prime Minister Trudeau was elected. He basically gave the country two very top priorities. One was reconciliation with First Nations people. And the second one was addressing climate change as a sort of a national priority. Two things have happened. Uh, reconciliation has not gone as well as he'd hoped, although you will have not had a government in Canadian history that has made such a concerted and heartfelt effort to actually bring about positive and constructive change. Um, but then, you know, the same government fired uh, Julie Wilson-Raybo and uh, removed Jane Philpott from caucus when those two had been extremely influential in setting the initial agenda. The other part of the sort of climate change situation was the strategy seemed unnecessarily focused on the people of Western Canada. This was not a national plan or a, a sharing of the challenge and the difficulty of actually achieving, achieving a sort of a sustainable economy. This was basically counting on the energy sector in Alberta to a lesser extent, BC and Saskatchewan to share the overwhelming burden of doing that. So contemplate for yourself one second. What would have happened if the government of Canada had said, we're going to ask the Western Canadian oil and gas sector to contribute, say, 30% or 40% to the reduction overall, and we're going to ask all of the other Canadians to do the same thing. And unfortunately, we're going to have to close down a bunch of manufacturing plants. We're going to have to increase energy consumption costs across the country as a whole. We're going to have to force people to back off on their use of automobiles on a regular basis through taxes or whatever. And we're going to put some real brakes on the whole question of voluntary airline travel because people flying off to Florida or to the Caribbean or to Mexico for holidays in the middle of the winter, a very energy intensive process. Well, what do you think the rest of the country would be saying and doing right now if the government of Canada had introduced such a policy, which is far more equitable, would be more fair and just? would make it a truly national policy and national program. So the Liberal government made a gamble that they could address both of these issues simultaneously. They alienated a lot of Indigenous people, not all, on the question of oil and gas and pipeline development. That's now contributed to a real anger in the country as a whole, unfortunately directed largely toward Indigenous people with a misrepresented idea that they're the ones who are responsible for all of this stuff. But it really is a combination of a small number of Indigenous protesters in a very, very well-organized and well-financed environment mental sort of sector, they've lost the message and they've lost the game. And I think that's a real tragedy that is actually has the potential to do serious harm to Canada. Yes, and I believe your, your point's well taken that some of that harm has already started to have been done. And I think we'll, we'll turn back to the failure of, of the government to get resource development projects to the finish line. But uh, before we do, I just wanted to touch on one last point. Uh, you recently wrote an op-ed which appeared in the Globe and Mail got quite a bit of attention online, I will have to say. And your contention was effectively that the protests that were at that point ongoing, um, blockading railroads and whatnot, differed from the idle no more protests that were seen under the Harper government. Did you want to maybe explain some of your, your point in that op-ed? And do you think that that still holds to be true in this long-term look at the situation? Are the, the present sort of issues related to um, Indigenous affairs and the, the federal government's failure to move forward? forward as aggressively as they'd hoped to on reconciliation. 
Is that different than what we saw with Idle No More? Or is this manifestation of the protests that we've seen lately different than Idle No More? I'd love it if you could explain that a bit. So I, I think they're very different. Idle No More was, was one thing. I think with current protests or something quite different, there's obviously connections between the two. Idle No More was a quite remarkable uh, outpouring of indigenous uh, cultural determination and willingness to sort of stand up and be counted. But it was extremely peaceful and it did not involve big blockades that shut down the trains for, for weeks on end. You actually had a situation where there were very, very few disruptions of non-Indigenous population. A lot of the groups met in shopping malls and they sang and they danced for 40 minutes or half an hour or an hour. Then they broke up and went home. And they were actually quite well received and people were thinking, what's going on here? Well, it's Indigenous people standing up and saying, don't forget that we're here. We want to tell you what our concerns are. We're going to tell you where Canada has been failing us. And on specific policy issues, and we don't like what you've done, and this goes Idle No More is connected to the Conservative government's omnibus bill. And we're going to tell you we're ticked off. But we're also going to keep fighting for this. We're going to keep pushing our things forward. I, I see Idle No More as a real um, burst of enthusiasm among Indigenous people to be heard and to stand up and be listened to. And I think it actually shocked a lot of Canadians and has resulted in a lot of the support for reconciliation. Because it was clear that they were asking for Canada to work better for Indigenous people. Second point I would make is that the real mystery in Indigenous affairs in Canada is not that there's protests, but that there are so few. Given these circumstances for Indigenous peoples and government and for many decades, the dragging, real dragging of governments about getting these problems addressed, how many non-Indigenous communities would put up with 10, 15 years of boiled water advisories in their community without appropriate government action? The answer is not very many. So why do we not have more? Why do Indigenous peoples not have more? A lot of it goes back to treaties. You know, they signed treaties that said we will basically coexist with you in peace and harmony, and we will actually hold ourselves to that standard. And they, they, as a national group, they've done so incredibly, incredibly well. And this particular one we're seeing now, it's actually not clear as to what this is. Is it a an Indigenous rights movement uh, across the country as a whole? Not really. We had a brocade in Saskatoon a couple of days ago. It was a very small turnout. It represented some people who have strong defenders of Indigenous rights, and including non-Aboriginal folks. But that is not a groundswell of First Nations rising up in opposition to the government of Canada. So I think this is actually best understood as an anti-pipeline, climate change-driven process that sort of got attached to an Indigenous rights agenda because of the role of the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en people. And that was quite different things. This is springing from multiple sources, from extreme radical environmentalists to sort of more concerned climate change activists, and some anarchists are mixed into the group as well. Anti-capitalists are mixed into the groups. You know, many of the sessions actually seem to be like Bernie Sanders rallies from the United States, a comprehensive sort of set of agendas. And the indigenous part of this is somewhat tagged on to the end. And I'm quite frankly expecting that when this finally is resolved, and we're going to know when that will be, that we'll actually see a lot of the supporters drop their interest in Indigenous rights and Indigenous affairs. I don't think any of the people who are standing up understand the whatsoever situation terribly well. It's very complicated. And for good reasons at a local level, the people who are upset with hereditary chiefs were really reluctant to speak out. They don't want to show the intensity and, and difficulty in their own governance systems and their frustration at the local level. They don't want that to be shown to the public at large any more than a, a city in southern Ontario would like the whole country to know about the fact that their mayor and council don't get along with their civic administration. These are embarrassing affairs in many ways. So I think there's been a, a somewhat of an appropriation 
of the indigenous rights issue and tacked onto this other sort of situation. That said, the Wet'suwet'en chiefs have have a, a legitimate series of questions. Uh, they have been recognized by the Supreme Court in the Delgamuth decision in the 1990s. There are unresolved and unrecognized governance rights that have not been codified. We don't have a modern treaty signed by the uh, the government of Canada, maybe signed by the government of British Columbia, but certainly ratified and supported by the Wet'suwet'en people as a whole. And and that's where these decisions will be made. The decisions about the role of the hereditary chiefs is not, not something the government of Canada did wrong. It's not something the government of British Columbia or Ontario did wrong. But it's it's a failure to complete that whole process. In the case of the Wet'suwet'en people, they will make the decision about how they will be represented. That's the sort of full stop kind of observation. And we're not there yet. Well, I, I think that's uh, one point I wanted to really pull out from from something you said is this notion that the protests aren't necessarily tied to a larger conceptualization of Indigenous rights. And I think this point was made perhaps most succinctly, as I heard it from uh, Bob Fife on the radio fairly recently, where he, he posed the question that if the situation were reversed, if uh, all of the democratically elected chiefs were opposed to this project, a large number of hereditary chiefs were opposed, but a few hereditary chiefs were in favor of this project, would we see the same protesters saying the same things? And I think that's perhaps a very good way to look at this, that they would probably be protesting, you know, in in favor of whoever is opposed to the project, irrespective of uh, whether or not these individuals are indigenous, whether or not these individuals come from communities with uh, complex political systems. And and as you as you correctly point out, it's not that the Wet'suwet'en have done anything wrong or anything. It's it's just that their their political system is one that's based on consensus and that requires the hereditary chiefs to have a role. One quick point before we move on to some of the larger issues facing the natural resource economy. If we were to put you in the seat of the prime minister today and we we're to say to you, okay, Professor Coates, fix this for us. What would you do? Or if we had even gone back a few weeks in time near the beginning of the blockades, what would you have advised the the government do to resolve this issue? Well, number one, you go back to 2015, October, when the government prime minister and his government made some extremely bold promises of what reconciliation would look like in Canada, including the establishment of UNDRIP as the law of the land, major efforts to address infrastructure issues, reconciliation, co-production of policy and whatever. Don't promise things you're not going to be able to deliver. The governments of Canada have been doing that to Indigenous people for, for a very, very long time. And you think we'd know better. Like basically, I think in, if back at that time, 2015, the government had said, we're going to commit ourselves to a process of, of collaborative decision making, where Indigenous peoples will be part of the process as we go along. And we won't, we won't do policy on you, we'll do policy with you. They could have set a completely different agenda. Um, this actually, by the way, is the position that has been advanced in different ways uh, by Jody Wilson-Raybo while she was in cabinet and subsequent to when she was out of cabinet and out of the Liberal caucus. So we, we kind of know how we have to deal with this in the long run. And that's a that's a number one sort of situation. Had we done that, we probably would not have had this explode in quite the same sort of way. It would have been clear to Wet'suwet'en and all the other First Nations that they had a clear role in setting policy and that they had the opportunity to to work with government and with the private sector in those kind of ways. So we left a whole bunch of stuff unresolved. And so some people claim, you know, under UNDRIP, you have free prior and informed consent. Well, we don't have completed laws to what free prior and informed consent means in Canada. But we do have a federal court of appeal decision in BC just a couple of weeks ago that said, actually, it does not include a veto that one, two, three, or five communities cannot shut down major projects. 
And, and I think we need to have situations where, where we know in advance what governance systems and decision-making processes we're using. And that's not to blame the finger at everybody. If I was a what's what and I'd be very cautious about making a quick decision along these lines. The hereditary chiefs have a role, play a role in decision-making in other communities. They actually have a formalized role within their, their decision-making structures. Your question you asked before about saying that the situation was reversed, what would actually happen? We actually have examples of that because it occurred with the Northern Gateway Project. And um, Enbridge had actually, in a couple of communities, had had some hereditary chiefs support the pipeline. And the environmentalists went out of their way to talk about the fact that that wasn't all that significant because the elected bands and councils did not support the project. And they were sort of making, you know, making fun is the wrong word, but sort of willfully ignoring the roles of hereditary chiefs. So I, I make a quick observation, if I may. You go back to sort of the history of Indigenous peoples in Canada, and several scholars, and particularly the literary uh, genius of, of Tom King, have talked at different times about the usable Indian, where how governments of the day, the dominant society, basically want Indigenous people to behave a certain way. And they, they put all their values and hopes and aspirations on those Indigenous folks. To that, I say, let's break that pattern first. Indigenous peoples can decide their future and their role. Full stop. You know, they can do that within the context of the Canadian Constitution and Canadian laws, full stop. There is a path forward, and it is not one of unresolved decision-making structures, unresolved political processes, unresolved policy-making frameworks. It is one of actually looking for real partnership. Because again, I reinforce something I've said before. The Coastal Gas Link Pipeline Project and the Associated LNG Canada Project is the most impressive and substantial and most expensive Indigenous engagement with the natural resource economy in Canadian history. So why are we talking about the fact that some people, a couple of hereditary chiefs who have very important roles in their own territories, have the unresolved and unclarified roles, and a very small number of people across the whole country are basically holding up the Canadian economy. The message is exactly the wrong one. It's just the wrong one. And, and I think that leads in really well to this, this point about the Tech Frontier mine as well. As you know, the company recently decided that they were going to pull their application at the almost quite literally 11th hour. In their statement, they cited an uncertain environment for, for investment, but also made specific mention of Canada's climate change objectives, which was a bit of a strange notion considering that this project has had uh, millions upon millions of dollars invested into it to try to get it off the ground. It's been a multi-year effort, something that's consumed this company in terms of actually trying to get it approved. So then to, at the last moment, to have a change of heart with regards to climate change does strike one as perhaps being not the full picture of truth. So with regards to this project as well, though, there were quite a few Indigenous communities who were excited for it, who were interested in the impact benefits that they were going to receive were interested in having their community members uh, work on project sites and uh, benefit from this economic boom. Because as we've mentioned, the natural resource economy is not something that is just exclusive to non-Indigenous Canadians, but is rather an economy that is increasingly becoming one of partnership that is extending benefits toward Indigenous communities and is in fact being led in many regards uh, by Indigenous business leaders. So with that in mind, what's your sense about this project? Do you trust that the, the reason for its cancellation was as the the company said just about concerns regarding climate change strategy? Uh, it certainly wasn't because of concerns about Indigenous rights, that's for sure. You know, they've managed to get the communities in the area on board. They've made some, as part of that deal, there's some remarkable engagement included in terms of remediation, protection of animals and water sources and things of that sort. So in one sense, again, the tech project sort of stands as a, as a model of what's possible. 
something that would have been inconceivable 25 years ago, probably even unlikely 10 years ago. So so this is actually really important that we go ahead with no other way reason than to show that with First Nations people support a project, it has a special priority. And this actually sending the opposite message. It says that First Nations can agree uh, that they can defend their land, they can look after their traditional territories, they can get a, a appropriate return out of the project. And the government of Canada might have said, we don't care anyway. I, I believe the people from the from the tech resources, they're a very good Canadian company and very good citizens in a whole bunch of different ways. And so is the Ohio Sands development generally. You cannot find any other part of the Canadian economy where private sector is as heavily and systematically engaged in working with Indigenous peoples than you can see in, in the oil and gas sector, which is the exact opposite, again, of what people generally seem to think about what's going on. But the reality is we do not have a coherent and, and clearly identified climate change plan. We have a carbon tax um, that is, has won a couple of court challenges that lost in Alberta's courts yesterday. So if that's your whole climate plan, that's not very much. We've got a couple of investments in you know, alternative energy resources and some transit systems, which are small small potatoes in the broader sort of concern about, about the climate change. We don't have a clear strategy that says we're going to do A, B, and C, and we're going to get to our 2050 targets or we're going to get to our Paris Accord targets. We, we're just not there. And, and so if I'm in, the, in that sector, and what have I seen, say, the last five years? The Harper government was very supportive of the oil and gas sector, and some people would say too supportive, that they should have been pressing them harder. But what you've seen uh, really since uh, 2015 is a government that's prepared to turn up the temperature on an almost annual basis. So you think you've resolved something, and then you get Bill C-69. Um, then the government says, well, we're going to bring in UNDRIP, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and that will change the equation potentially. But of course, we're not going to be able to find out till later on. The sort of use of the courts that was done, particularly in the First Nations in Southwest British Columbia, of course, they have every right in the world to use the courts. Of course, they can do that as much as, as sort of the courts will tolerate. But of course, the, the fact that the government sort of did not handle the Trans Mountain, one of the Trans Mountain appeals very effectively, you know, delayed the project again for another year. The The issue there is, what is the government's climate change agenda? It's vague, it's imprecise, the policy is malleable, the policy is changing, et cetera, et cetera. But the policy is also not a national policy. It is a policy focused on the energy industry, and actually, quite frankly, only the energy industry in Western Canada. And so we're not doing the same kind of due diligence and sort of major steps forward in the rest of the country as we're doing in, in Alberta, BC, and Saskatchewan. So the frustration is mounting. Um, indigenous people are very heavily involved in the oil and gas sector. The people, the communities that are involved and that want to participate have been counting on this to establish a new economic framework for their communities, a way to sort of empower the communities, address some of their social issues, have money outside of the control of the government of Canada, employment for young people, business development possibilities, and, and long-term future. And now that seems to be taking away, but we still don't know because we don't know what the next stage will be. Right near the end there, you were mentioning that uh, this is this is something that the temperature keeps getting turned up. It's particularly bad for Western Canada, where they're bearing the brunt of this. It doesn't seem like the government is taking particularly seriously the economic issues that are being caused by its own actions and own pressures on provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan. So um, with all that in mind, it seems like nothing can get done in this country to some extent when you have railways that are blocked by people who could fit in, in a minivan, when you have projects that are 
economically viable with broad-based Indigenous support and partnership that are being cancelled at the 11th hour. And when you have things like the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, which, as you say, are perhaps part of one of the largest and most successful Indigenous consultations in Canadian history, it's, it's, a, it's a real success story economically as well as from an Indigenous rights perspective. When you have even those projects failing, are you worried that perhaps nothing can get done anymore under in this current uh, climate of decision-making? I'm very worried about how we sort of maintain a resource economy. I will highlight some success. The uh, Canadian mining industry has done very well in their collaborations. These are more site-specific projects. They don't have sort of a huge footprint of something like an oil sands initiative. No big, long pipeline sort of attached to it. It's more road traffic and things of that sort. And so it's not all bad news. We have some very, very successful Indigenous collaborations in the mining sector, also in the forest industry, although forest industry is in significant difficulty on British Columbia in particular right now. I mean, that's because of market forces and other, other sort of uh, uh, issues. I think uh, all we have to do is look at the loss of uh, investment capital in the country. And there's two parts to this. And because this is an international campaign, so you've got you know university students on in, in disinvestment strategies, the Guardian newspaper, which I'm sure actually does use some carbon in order to finance its oper- op- to its operations. And I'm sure their journalists don't take paddle boards across the Atlantic. They probably fly on planes. They have actually said they're going to disinvest from the oil and gas sector and not take advertising from oil and gas companies. All right, they can do that. This is part of the global campaign against the sector. Well, even while the, the International Panel on Climate Change basically says for the next 20 years, we're not really going to see a decline in energy consumption. The people who are protesting aren't even following sort of the organization that sort of is really setting their agenda on on a scientific basis and understanding what has to be done. We're not going to have any less oil produced in the world because of the closure of the Canadian energy sector, if that's what actually happens, or even just the, the stalling of its growth. We'll do some more in Canada. We might eventually get a pipeline built. We'll still develop the resource uh, right now at an undervalued sort of level. But other countries will fill in the gaps. Saudi Arabia will produce more energy. Nigeria produce more energy. Venezuela, if they can get their act together at some point. Brazil. There's other places you can get oil and gas from. You get it from Norway, which seems to get a complete free pass on most of the criticism. Greenpeace has just uh, taken them to court about some of their Arctic oil and gas exploration and development. Uh, but they get a, internationally get a free pass uh, for most countries. And Canada has left itself out in the front, you know, and other countries kind of enjoying this. The United States has been expanding its oil and gas production magnificently and monumentally, very fast, building pipelines, particularly in Texas and other areas at a rapid pace. And they're not standing up and sort of protecting, defending the Canadian interest. We're a competitor, an international competitor of theirs. And we get our energy to, to, to international markets. They're going to be competing with American companies. I'm, I'm very concerned about this overall. And quite frankly, if you look at the empowerment of unrepresentative protest groups, nobody elected most of the people who are opposing the project. They're, they're, they're individuals and organizations, some of them well-funded organizations. I had somebody from Manitoba phone me up and was really upset because a university faculty member was being asked by the protest groups to go find Indigenous students who would come and join their protest. So it's not all, in this particular case, not, not terribly uh, spontaneous, not you know, it's rooted through a, a different sort of network. Where are they going to turn their attentions next? Are we? Are they going to stop the construction of uh, a transit systems, for example? If they manage to do this, if they do slow down, already slowed it down, but if they stop the development of oil and gas production, are they going to block the 401 in Toronto? They'll block the 417 in Ottawa. Are they just going to interfere with any energy consumption in order to get their fairly radical agenda sort of uh, addressed? If you were an investor, would you be rushing to Canada to put money into the oil and gas sector at this time? I don't think so. 
And we've had billions of dollars, you know, $50 billion this year alone of energy investment that has disappeared from this country and may not come back. We've got an odd situation now where Canadian investment capital, which used to be a strong underpinning of the natural resource economy, is actually now leaving Canada because you just don't know where it's going next. Bill C-69 expanded the uh, environmental assessment sort of process and expanded its footprint in a very substantial sort of way. It works in the mining industry. It's more complicated for the energy sector. Why would you come into this country when you have other options uh, to investigate elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I think that's uh, the worrying point, right? As you, as you said, other countries can supply these energy products too. And while we might be a dependable, reliable source of energy on the face of it, while we might be an attractive option for all sorts of other reasons, including our human rights record and the fact that we do uh, treat uh, Indigenous communities much better than a lot of countries in the world. We might be attractive on some grounds, but as you say, the investment climate isn't particularly good when you see even these projects that have broad Indigenous support being shut down by a very vocal, uh, eco-minded minority. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and uh, let's hope for the best for with regards to uh, Canada's energy industry. You bet. Thank you very much.